On this week's episode of Where We Are, Melissa and I will continue our two-part series this week making the best case for why Republicans are poised to do well in November's midterm elections. We'll also hear from Melissa about the death of Queen Elizabeth II, the ascent to the throne of King Charles, and what it means for Britain, uh, the UK, the Commonwealth, and the world. You're listening to Where We Are. This is where we are. We are the Wares. I'm Michael. I'm Melissa. And uh, I'm, I'm glad to continue this two-part series, uh, Melissa. Uh, I mean, the midterm elections are are pretty close. But before we get to that, as I sort of mentioned in the teaser, I've been around D.C. I've been talking with various capitals and uh, as... As uh, as people meet with me, uh, they they say, I, I don't care what you have to say about anything. <laughs> I want to know what Melissa thinks about everything that's transpired in uh, in Britain and in the UK over the last week. And so I just could not, even though we have a planned episode uh, about. The midterm elections. Uh, I feel great pressure from many people in in my life and our life uh, uh, to give you the opportunity to reflect on what you've seen in the UK. For folks who don't know, uh, we talked about it in a previous episode, but Melissa spent years working for the British Council. Uh, and maybe she'll share a bit about about the British Council, uh, and, and continues to work uh, as a consultant uh, for the British Council, and has spent a, a good amount of time uh, in, in the UK. And uh, Melissa, you you staffed uh, then Prince Charles when yes, when and- he was here for an official trip back when you were working uh, uh, when you were employed by the British Council. Yeah, and Camilla too and Princess Anne. Yeah, I mean the whole the whole family. Uh, <laughs> so so Melissa, I mean I've been uh, we've been traveling, we've been sort of apart. I'm interested sort of how are you processing and, and what's your sort of analysis uh, uh, in the wake of of Queen Elizabeth II's death after a 70-year reign and, mm-hmm. and King Charles uh, um, uh, taking taking the throne. Yeah, it's been interesting to watch. The reactions I've seen both from Americans, from the British themselves, um, from people globally around the world, because, you know, we, we have quite a peek into it because of social media um, and the media landscape that we live in now. I haven't been surprised by any of the reactions at all. Um we're seeing sort of two-part reactions, one of deep mourning and, you know, Michael and I, we, we, we send our condolences to the entire royal family um, for the loss of their beloved mother, grandmother, sister. Um, 
but there have been other people who have obviously reflected on Queen Elizabeth's reign. She um, she took the throne when the British Empire was still quite large. She saw a lot of dismantling of the British Empire, but um, even if the British Empire doesn't exist anymore, all of its effects um, still very much live lives on today. Um, and it's felt by a lot of people. It felt viscerally. Um, there's a lot of pain. And so there have been just two-part reactions and people trying to hold two things in tension is just really difficult for a lot of people to do. So I haven't been surprised by those kinds of reactions. And um, I'm, I'm, I wouldn't say that I'm the person to be commenting further or deeper on that. The, the, what, has, what has interested me is, like Michael said, so I worked for the cultural arm of the British government. I'm a very, very, very unique organization when it comes to um, global politicking. The British Council is a unique organization that not many other countries have a similar type of apparatus through which they promote their own culture and thereby their own soft power while also connecting with people and giving them opportunities. Um, and it's very much a reflection of the UK's ability and need and sort of efforts towards um, Rec uh, recognizing its colonial past and the the effects that they've had on the world um, while also celebrating all that British culture has to offer. Uh, the UK as a soft power entity, so by soft power, um, that's a term you might hear thrown around a lot right now and you might have heard it thrown around in the past. Soft power is the ability for a country to attract rather than detract. Um, and a lot of time that a lot of times that attraction comes through culture. So music, art, film and for the uk a lot of it's through the royal family um there was a scholar a bunch of years ago who came up with that term but i won't go into that but the queen is one of the most was one of the most famous people in the entire world um the percentage of people in various countries who who would be able to identify the queen are so high compared to other sorts of figures or celebrities it's it's quite astounding um so you have somebody who's incredibly well-known. Um, you have somebody who has ruled the longest of any monarch in the UK's history, who people have grown up with. There are people who are 70 years old right now who from the day that they were born did not know a time um, in which Elizabeth was not queen. Um, and so the queen and the royal family itself carries... I think, an immeasurable amount of soft power. It is so well known. The amount of um, goodwill that it engenders. Of course, there are quite a few people who are um, anti-monarchy in the UK and obviously anti-monarchy elsewhere in the world, especially in former colonies. But that percentage is actually quite low. And the amount of people who are favorable towards the royal family and especially favorable towards the queen, the numbers are quite high. And so the UK just lost their greatest soft power figure tool, whatever you'd like to call her. This is going to sound very utilitarian and I and I still want to be sensitive to the fact that she has just passed, but uh, please hear me out here. Um, the UK also just got a new prime minister about a week before that. Um, and so the UK, one would think, would be in a huge time of turmoil. And of course... You know, I'm not sitting in London right now in the giant, giant 25-hour queue that is going on for people to pay their respects to the Queen. 
And so I know that British friends have told me, and I know that there's a general feeling of, you know, how well will Charles do? What kind of monarch will he be? Will he really fill in her role? Will he be beloved like she was? Um, and, you know, Prime Minister Liz Truss, what will she actually do? How will she fix our energy crisis? How will she fix inflation? How will she fix the NHS, which is, has been crumbling for decades now? Um, and so there, there is a bit of uncertainty um, felt globally and in the UK. But the funny thing I was reflecting on this day is that when you have um, institutions that are actually quite strong, um, that are support not only strong in and of themselves internally, but supported externally by the people, by voters, um, by citizens. It's interesting to watch how the UK is weathering this so far over the last couple of weeks, where the headlines are, you know, the UK's power is falling. Where does it stand in the world? What will the special relationship happen? You know, what will happen to the special relationship between the, between the US and UK? There's a little bit of that chatter, but not much. Um, and it's because... UK has these very strong institutions. So, I mean, for all you institutionalists out there, should be feeling pretty uh, chuffed, if I were to say, <laughs> if I were to use a British term, about how well it shows that institutions can weather some big, big, big changes. Um, and especially in a time in the US where uh, faith in institutions is actually quite low and uh, the various you know, crises that we've been facing over the past two, three, four, five years... Um, have shaken a lot of people to their core. It'll be very interesting, I think, to watch polling by a you know reputable firm like YouGov or Ipsos over the next three months, six months, year, two years about um, how Brits themselves feel about the stability of their country and the direction of where their country is going. And then you know take surveys of Americans about the special relationship, things like that, to see if this particular time has really shaken or if Charles is able to really fill in the role, continue to um, be a strong face for the royal family, continue to garner all that goodwill around the world and the sort of affinity and sort of the anglophilia that um, the royal family engenders in a lot of different um, uh, populations and citizenries around the world. Obviously, there's questions around the Commonwealth um, in a sort of, uh, it's not a power vacuum per se because the Queen actually didn't hold a lot of... Um, political power but you know she held enough and the commonwealth was main she was the main take care of the commonwealth by the commonwealth i mean the sort of conglomeration of countries that um still hold a strong relationship with the uk so like australia new zealand canada and there's i mean there's many more there's actually uh, quite a few who are a part of the commonwealth you might start seeing some countries bring up questions of should we stay in the the commonwealth but that's actually pretty common when you have a big transition of power i don't think that's like a reflection on the commonwealth and its strength in and of itself obviously politically we will see at a time when there's new prime minister and at a time when there's a new royal um if scotland tries to throw another referendum to um decouple from the uk so the united kingdom is actually four nations england scotland northern ireland and wales there's the Northern Ireland protocol. That's a big question right now. And that's because Brexit just finally happened about a year ago. And there's questions between Nor Northern Ireland being a part of the UK and Ireland to the south being a part of the EU. And how do how does the border work? And you'll be seeing a lot of movement probably um, by the US administration, by President Biden towards, towards these ends um, to work on negotiations for this Northern Ireland protocol, this, this issue with the border. Um, 
So those are my main thoughts that it just, it's a time of transition. So a lot of people will be questioning, should we stay? Should we leave when it comes to various power structures and institutions that, um, the UK upholds either through the prime ministership or through the, the monarchy. Um, but I will be very interested to see if Charles is able to fill in the vacuum, the soft power vacuum that has now been vacated by his mother. Um, because in the end, you know, when you survey anybody around the world, when you ask about a country, they tend to bring up something cultural rather than something political. Like culture actually really matters to people. And it matters to power in the end. And I think a lot of people will not write about this or talk about this. A lot of people forget about the power of soft uh, of soft power. Um, it's not the most eloquent way to say it, but I'm not really sure if Charles will be able to fill in the role. We'll have to see. Maybe it'll be enough. Maybe the momentum behind how people view the monarchy and how positively it's viewed, it will... He's already got enough momentum that he actually won't have to, you know, um, change much or, you know, be someone he's not, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. No, that's super interesting and wanted to make sure that you you spoke to that. Um, the funeral uh, for Queen Elizabeth II is on uh, September 19th, so on uh, Monday. And so the world will be... Uh, watching, watching that uh, as they've seen watched the queen, yes, uh, the queen's remains uh, go uh, really across the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I said, the huge queue going on right now for people to pay their respects. Which, if you have seen people talking about the queue, it's not just the queue itself. There's like this particular British cultural thing around queues where British people love queues. They love talking about queues, and so now this epic, epic twenty-five hour queue. Um, it, it's been it's funny to watch. It's the mother of all cues. It's the mother yeah. of all cues. So people are just kind of fawning over it, which is a bit, you know, weird, hilarious, highly British. Yeah. <laughs> well, Melissa, thank you for uh, for that uh, insightful overview and sort of recap and, and preview and and so many things. That was that was really helpful. Uh, we're gonna take a quick break. When we get back, uh, we'll talk about. Republicans uh, heading into these midterms and the reasons why uh, they're poised to do well in November. This is where we are. Listening to where we are, hosted by the That Sounds Fun Network. We're back from the break. I think to tee up this conversation about Republicans, I don't know how it's going to play out, but here would be my guess. And I just want to sort of preempt, uh, I don't know, some potential questions or, or maybe even uh, maybe even criticism. Um, so. Again, the the idea is last week we made sort of 
basically listed all the reasons why, or, or many of the reasons why, if Democrats do well in November, that those are the reasons sort of, sort of why. Um, the reasons why, you know, we, we could say, you know, we, we saw this coming. Uh, we are, we're going to do the same thing this week. I do think it will probably be a briefer discussion and it will probably be a, a little bit of a less animated discussion. And I just want folks to know that's not because we, uh, you know, we're, we're um, trying to undersell uh, the Republicans' case or can't sort of. Um, it's, been a, it's been a difficult few weeks for Republicans. Mm-hmm. They had all of yeah. the wind at their back. And whether you talk to... Uh, you know, whether you talk to strategists on the Democratic side or on the Republican side, Republicans' expectations have lowered. Uh, there is not the expectation that they'll, uh, among most of the people you talk to and most of the people who are looking at the state of play now, which is not November, but uh, the, the mood has soured a mm-hmm. bit among Republicans. And so... It, it, I, I think that's um, so that accounts for I think much of the distinction. If, if we had recorded these episodes uh, four months June. ago, June, yeah, even in June, I think it would be a, a much uh, much different discussion. Frankly, because I think the Republicans were on a better track in June and things have changed, like just circumstances have changed and maybe they'll change again. So with that being said, let's, Melissa, kind of talk about why Republicans, uh, the reasons why Republicans would be poised to do well in November. Uh, And the first I'll say is... And this is another reason why I think this conversation is going to be quite different, is that for Democrats, you kind of have to make the case about why things will be a break from the historical norm. Yep. And so, you know, if if the object is to, if the goal is to make the case for Democrats, you need to overcome sort of expectations sort of historical standards of, of how these these midterm elections uh, go. With Republicans, the best case is that it would be pretty normal for Republicans to do really well in a midterm election. Yep. Historically, the, uh, the opposing party of the party in the White House, uh, the party out of power, uh, does really well in these midterm elections. You'll remember Barack Obama in 2010 uh, saying that uh, he and the Democrats uh, uh, faced a shellacking in the midterm elections, and they did. <laughs> they got I love wiped. that word so much. I use it all the time. They got wiped out. Um, uh, 1994 was another famous sort of election where that, you know, Clinton was elected in 92 and 94 Republicans just wiped out like a generation of, of Democrats. And so there's a lot of history to suggest that Republicans should do well. The other part of the historical argument uh, is that Republicans uh, are, are viewed 
traditionally, although I do think this could be changing, but the historical, sort of the modern, the recent view is that Republicans have an advantage in midterm elections based on the composition of the Republican base, that, that there's the idea that Republican voters are more reliable. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's a chance that we start seeing that turn because of changes in the party's electorate. Um, I, I think the Democrats increasing uh, reliance on college educated uh, folks might mean that midterm elections are they're, they're not disadvantaged as much as they uh, uh, had been, but we haven't seen that borne out. And whether it's sort of Republicans having uh, more reliable voters, or you look at the fact that Democrats are going to be relying on young voters to turn out, which uh, uh, are uh, can't younger voters can be can be flaky uh, sometimes, <laughs> and so so th- those are like the uh, Melissa. We could talk about uh, you know things that aren't so built in and that are specific to sort of twenty twenty two. But I think the strongest reasons for Republicans doing well, with one exception we'll get to, um, uh, is that like history is on their side mm-hmm. in a I way. I mean, we yeah. could literally end this podcast right now because we've given the best explanation. I mean, it's it's that strong of a precedent. Yeah. Basi- basically, I'm interested if you have anything else to say on it. what what I thought of was, so it's it's the historical sort of precedent, which again, isn't like foolproof there it, mm-hmm. it, it, it's not like this would be the first time ever that a party th- that was in the white house didn't sort of lose both the house and the senate uh, etc uh, but sort of that's that's the trend that's the likely scenario but you pair that history with the fact that the incumbent president has a low er approval rating and and then you go okay well this is based on like the conventional laws of politics up until this point, if it's a midterm uh, in the first term of an incumbent president, the mid the midterm functions as a referendum on that incumbent president. Uh, and therefore, if that incumbent president's approval rating is not doing well, uh, and though Biden's has improved in recent months, which is part of why Democrats sort of uh, are feeling better about this the midterms than they were before. Uh, it's still the case that he's polling below fifty percent, uh, and I, I don't think he's uh, I don't think he's likely to to hit fifty percent prior uh, to the midterms. So that's another factor mm-hmm. that that um, there are some uh, you know, less than half of the country approves of the incumbent president. Yep. And, and you would think that that, you know, is going to find expression in the midterm elections. Mm-hmm. Anything you you want to say about sort of those structurals? Uh, and then we could talk about how things are actually shaking out in some of these races. But any other structural pieces that you would have? And we could get to issues and, and that kind of thing. But but just on sort of the history, the 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 fundamentals of you know Biden's approval rating, 
Uh, any I guess other the comment? one yeah. the one other fundamental that has become I feel like a structural reason, even though that it can move over to an issue area as well, is the economy. Yes. I've mentioned yeah. this a billion times sure. on this podcast. In case you're listening for the first time, when voters vote, the economy is usually one of the top things in mind. So if the economy is not doing well, it's gonna people vote on the economy. Um, and the inflation latest August inflation report came out about a week ago and inflation rose 8.3%, which is less than July's, which was at 8.5%. But most economists were predicting that it should have gone from 8.5% in July to 8.1% in August. And so the fact that it didn't decrease too much, even though there were there were a few commodities that, that, that decreased a bit, there were quite a few that increased, which is why that sort of median or average um, uh, inflation rate or consumer pricing index has has shown that it's still quite hot, yeah. which is just not a good report. The stock market responded in kind by plummeting. I mean, historically yeah. so. Historically yeah. so. Enough so that anybody who's really paying attention to the news, yes, you've been hearing a narrative over the past mm, six, seven weeks that the economy is doing better. Gas prices are low. Inflation is slowing down. All of a sudden, you've got this report coming out. It might pay, might make a few people pause. Yeah. I mean, a new PBS Marist poll came out earlier this month. 62% of Americans believe we're in a recession right now. Uh, 62%. That's 62%. a lot. 62%. That's a lot. When we kind of aren't. Yeah. So. yeah right. And so, <laughs> you know, it's interesting to, you know, I think... Right. All of this will be, you know, if the Democrats win, inflation won't matter. People will say, well, look at what employment looked like. They will say uh, they will say, look at uh, increase in wages. Mm -hmm. Um, Many other uh, indicators. Yeah, many other indicators are strong. If Republicans win, they'll say, of course, dummy gas prices, inflation. Of course, Democrats were going to lose, and Republicans were going to were going to win. I I do think there has been, as you said, Melissa. uh, Not only has there been a narrative, but again, sixty two percent of Americans, according to this poll, think think we're in a recession. That's a significant, I mean, that alone would be a significant reason why mm-hmm. you think, you know, if you told, if uh, if you told a political scientist who was in a coma, um, <laughs> but just woke up yesterday, uh, hey, we have a midterm election in less than two months. The incumbent president is polling uh, uh, well under 50 Sixty-two uh, percent of Americans believe we're in a recession. Uh, you know, who do you think will win the uh, the president's party or the opposing party? The political scientist is going to go. Yeah, based on that information, you know, uh, it's the gonna person be... would barely need to be awake. To yes, make that yeah, yeah. yes, yeah, they could still be woozy. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and so okay, so the economy is an issue. I think what other issues. Do you see, Melissa, that are in Republicans' favor? I think, well, if you look at what the attack ads have been for Republicans for about the past 9, 10, up to a year, basically, it's it's been inflation, but the other one has been crime and violence, especially in cities. Um, and, you know, Republicans frame cities as being sort of like Democratic enclaves, which, which I, they are. Um, and so they've been 
just harping on the increased violence and crime rates in cities across America, which, again, the numbers don't lie. There has been an increase in crime rates um, across dozens of cities. Um, and so they've been harping on that. And, you know, I wrote this article just this past week on security moms. Um, so appealing to people's sense of security and safety. Um, Republicans have been notoriously very good at that. And in these ads, they've been using crime and violence um, to talk about how, you know, with Democrats, you're not safe. And then with if you couple that with a good, what, six, seven months of a lot of work being done on um, gun violence, gun control and some actual legislation going on, um, you know, you can craft that narrative around you're not safe in your cities with Democrats and there are going to be fewer guns um, in, you know, around sitting in your household, whatever. Um, Yeah. So so what's so interesting, um, Melissa, is. I feel like we've come to expect Republicans to be, I mean, Trump aside, uh, we've come to expect Republicans to be good on message discipline and Democrats Mm -hmm. to sort of be all over the map. I think a reason why Republicans would do well uh, in November is if that holds true in the closing weeks of this campaign. Right. I will say it hasn't held true for the last three, four weeks oh, republicans yeah. have kind of been in disarray i think they've been thrown for a loop and uh so so what that what that does the challenge republicans have is uh the conversation has not been about crime it has not mm-hmm. really been about immigration they got off message for sure they got off message i mean events did did interject of course sure. dobbs uh, uh, the the president and Democrats in Congress, with some Republican help, being able to move significant legislation yeah. forward. And so, you know, I, I think uh, if Re- if Republicans do well in November, I think it's fair to say that there is at least some course correction there. Mm-hmm. You know, if the if the last you know seven weeks of this campaign are debates about whether or not we're in a recession, Republicans are probably going to do really well. The challenge for Republicans is getting to that point when you have uh, several, uh, I mean, a number of Republican candidates, both electeds and uh, uh, both those in office and those running, who uh, are sort of doing their own thing and... uh, I think from the view of many Republican strategists sort of distracting from what would be most advantageous to to Republicans. And so, yeah, I, I mean, I, 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 think, I think that's a good, good point, Melissa. Essentially, I feel like if we're coupling the economy, inflation, recession with crime, violence, what it feels like to me is that Republicans and I mean, you hear this all the time about, you know, uh, the affinity for for Ronald Reagan for President Ronald Reagan a bunch of a huge sector of um the conservative of the of conservatives of the Republican Party but it feels very much like a a Reaganite type of narrative that they've been trying to use over the last nine to twelve months which yes they kind of got off track because of so many various sort of su- surprises and um just distractions whereas if they get back on it um, I think that. It's one of the besides the whole historical precedent that it's pretty much one of the strongest 
reasons why they would do successful they would be successful sorry um in these midterms yeah. is that they've taken on i feel like do you agree with that or it, do you think there's more to it or am i sort of, sort of dumbing down no um a reagan type of election no no i, I no i think there's there's there there's merit to to that your what you were saying though did bring another reason why republicans uh can do well in November, and that is Donald Trump is not on the ballot. Yeah. And so, exactly. you know, you look at some of these key states, especially in, uh, in the Senate, you know, you look at Georgia in particular. Remember, uh, Trump very much made himself central to those two Senate elections in January uh in January of 2020, and Republicans lost both of them in, you know, a fairly red state, although now I think we're starting to talk about Georgia as purple, but those elections mm-hmm. are why. If Trump's not on the ballot, you know, um, does it depress, you know, is is that enough? Does it, does it take from Democrats something that they had in 2020 that they won't have in 2022 there's enough in in some of these races that's significant obviously a big a big part of that point being relevant to a republican success is uh are they able to keep trump on the sidelines or or sort of use him constructively uh without and sort of have his involvement be at least a neutral uh, thing and, and maybe a positive in some some locales and not be a negative in places like Georgia, Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. uh, New Hampshire, some of these places where, where they can't afford to, uh, where they need to both turn out their base and also uh, do very, do well among independents. And so uh, so that, that could be another factor. Uh, we could name. I think another interesting piece, Melissa, is um, we talked last week about uh, at least the perception that Republicans really shot themselves in the foot with some of their candidate recruitment. Yeah, Herschel Walker in Georgia. Uh, in Georgia, uh, Blake Masters in, in Arizona. In Arizona mm-hmm. uh, Oz in Pennsylvania, yep. that these are races where they were Republicans, if they had strong candidates, you know, should be able to do fair, fairly, fairly well, but their candidates might hurt them. If we see a Republican blowout, mm-hmm. I think you'll be able to look to some of the good recruiting that Republicans did in some of these races that are actually less competitive Mm -hmm. so they recruited who i someone i I think is a been a really solid uh uh, candidate um in uh, washington in the senate race now washington has been blue for a long time but if we see some sort of like you know red wave and again people haven't been talking about like a red wave for uh for for weeks now because of uh, because of how things have changed. But if that turns, we see Republicans uh, uh, sort of with momentum heading into November. Uh, 
it's possible that they see maybe they're able to make a play in a place like Washington or I, I really like uh, their nominee, uh, their candidate in uh, Oregon for the gubernatorial race. And we, we talked about her on the Substack, uh, I think a couple of weeks ago. And so I do think that there, there's been some actual like yeah. interesting recruiting uh, on like rungs three and four. Yeah. That if Republicans are able to reach, if if they are doing well enough that rungs sort of one and two are taken care of, then maybe like it, uh, the candidates that they've recruited in, in in rungs three and four are good enough that that uh, you know it catches it catches fire and Republicans end up having you know much uh, better better uh, better night than it um, than it than it seems like they 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 will now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's right. Uh, and then the the one other thing that I wanted to mention as well, just moving on just a little bit, but, yeah, yeah. but back to an issue was you, you mentioned Dobbs, and we talked about Dobbs last week, yeah, the Dobbs sure. abortion decision. I will always, and this is the cynic in me, um, but I also have polling and data to back it up, that Americans forget about stuff really quickly. The fact that Dobbs has lasted as long as it has, so about mm, a month and a half, what, about seven weeks now, eight weeks now, the fervor around it, like I said, it gives me confidence last week in terms of um, getting people to turn out on the Democratic side. But for Republicans, you still have several weeks left for that fervor to die down um, and for some people to, you know, sort of lose that fire or the reason why they want to get out and, you know, cast a vote. And so for Republicans, they, you know, I'm sure that I'm sure that they're very much hoping that that kind that that excitement will die down for democrats and i think you know there have been plenty of issues in the past where it's been some fervor for a given amount of weeks and then it then it dies off and people sort of forget a little bit yeah i mean i mean i think i'd just say again this is this is like just a reminder that this is an episode that's sort of laying out the best case scenario for republicans uh, that would be the yeah. best case scenario. For I have to mention it Republicans though because it is possible. It is totally I, possible. I'm starting to doubt it. I don't think it's likely, but I'm I starting think it's to possible. really doubt that it that it is possible. But I think it's I think there's a good percentage there of it happening still. Yeah. So I I feel like we have to mention it. Yeah. No. No. That's good. So I mean I think I don't know if you have anything to add. I think that is the Republicans sort of sort of. Uh, that is the Republicans' case. The fundamentals are in their favor. Uh, they have, I, I guess, one thing I'd add is, what? you know, we've seen. Uh, we talked last week about the COVID numbers and being yeah. surprised by that New York Times poll. We said in that episode uh, that we wanted to see those numbers sort of reconfirmed because they were so surprising right. to us. I haven't seen them confirmed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, I think there's, um, I think there's, we could see anecdotal evidence confirmed uh, by the election results that no, actually, those turning out to vote in November, significant percentages, including some traditionally Democratic constituencies, uh, are not happy with how Democrats handled. Uh, right. handled COVID. Uh, you know, for instance, 
you know, uh, Charlie, uh, Charlie Crist, but selected as his running mate, a, uh, teachers union official that's that's really betting in a state like florida that if if you if you're (laughs) if you're aggressive if you're if you're making the case around covid and those kinds of issues around education that you'll win and that the important thing is to not sort of back down i think we could be looking at that that chris race and if he loses going uh, you know, maybe that wasn't such a smart move. You know, like maybe yep. maybe that wasn't maybe that wasn't such a such a good idea. Uh, so I, I, you know, I think COVID, I'd, I'd place that on the table and sort of the uncertain politics uh, of of uh, of of that and how how that will play out. But I I feel like that's 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 the case uh, for Republicans to do well. And I think you know. I don't have wildly different sort of prognostications of what of what it would look like than some of what you'll you'll see out there from from others. You know, I think I and this isn't sort of making the best case. I think my expectation is that Republicans at the, at this point, I do think even with the momentum Democrats have gained, I expect Republicans to uh, win the house. I, uh, I, I think it's possible that Democrats hold their 50, 50, uh, uh, position in the Senate, maybe even picking up a seat that that would be again, sort of not making the best case for Republicans that that's just sort of how I'm thinking things are, are shaping up objectively now the best case for republicans would be you know instead of winning 230 seats or maybe not the best case but i think you know if republicans are doing well you know maybe they get up to 245 240 seats in the house in the senate maybe they get up to 52 53 uh, in the Senate, which would be a a, a pretty strong, a, a pretty strong majority, and that would mean they hold on to Wisconsin. Ron Johnson, who uh, is not liked by many of his own Republican colleagues, and um, faces a strong challenger, I think, in Mandela Barnes. But Ron Johnson holds on. Herschel Walker uh, or Oz, you know, win in. Pennsylvania or Georgia, and and you know, you know, and, and and that's I think what a reasonably a good night for Republicans looks like, and and then again you know Melissa I'm not counting out, so much can change over the next seven weeks. Um, can I ask? I don't think people should discount the idea that you know we see some significant. Sort of surprises on either end, but since this, since this is a Republican episode, uh, you know, I, I don't. Democrats shouldn't. Uh, he, here's what could happen: Democrats could start feeling so good about their ability to gain seats in the House, mm-hmm. or or at least hold on to the House and maybe gain seats in the Senate, that they start putting money into seats that they 
think they could win and fail to pro- to protect the mm-hmm. seats that they assume are safe. Um, th- that that could be a really tricky situation. So my at this point, I'd say Democrats should make sure they're protecting that Senate seat in Washington. They yeah. should make sure they're protecting that gubernatorial uh, seat in uh, in Oregon and not let some of these uh, some of these I think stronger candidates, stronger Republican candidates, sort of sort of sneak up on them. Right. I was going to ask, but you already said there could be some surprises because I was about to ask you, will there be an October surprise? Oh, an October surprise. <laughs> you know. Um, it's typically more of a presidential election type thing. but I mean, right. They tried with the the whole Martha's Vineyard thing. I know. Uh, you know, and, and I, I don't know. Maybe don't we'll. Don't even get me started. Yeah, we won't. But, um, you know, I, I think. I, I don't think it was. Uh, it certainly wasn't a clean win for Republicans and, and may, politically speaking, and may backfire on them. I, I think I, I share um, the moral and substantive yeah, uh, critique uh, that the others have shared, but we won't sort of get into that uh, on this episode. But, you, you know, yeah, I mean... Uh, just think about what the conversation looked like two months ago. Uh-huh. And how much I has guess changed. Two and, and how much has changed. Mm-hmm. And we still have like that much to go. I know. And so, uh, so yeah, quite, quite, uh, quite a lot can happen. I think the most volatile race potentially is Pennsylvania. You know, is, is Fetterman healthy? How does he perform in this debate? Uh, it, it do, does the debate go on? Does the debate actually take place? Uh, that Pennsylvania Senate election could be a huge sort of pivot point um, in in the balance of of the Senate. And then, of course, the, you say October surprise, Melissa. You just you have to say Trump. Mm-hmm. That's what Wh- I thought whether, you would say. Whether it's whether it's FBI DOJ investigation yep. escalating whether it's it's Trump deciding that he's going to announce early that he's yes. running for president. Yep. Uh and uh, you know that that would be uh, a significant <laughs> significant move that I think would would uh would affect <laughs> the midterms to say the least. And so uh, yeah, if I was looking for an October surprise, I'd be I'd be l- looking at uh Sort of where, where, and what former President Trump is is and what he's doing. I agree. That's the October surprise I would name. Yeah. As a prediction. Yeah. Um, well, hey, it was uh, great doing this episode. I I think hopefully, what we've done these last two weeks is set a framework for us to be thinking together. And tracking the midterms together as a as a as a community, so we've sort of laid out sort of what if the midterms are going well for Democrats, what will it look like? If the midterms are going well for Republicans, what will what will it look like? And and now we'll be able to kind of use those metrics, those sort of data points uh, that we've discussed these last two episodes to to sort of we'll we'll be able to track them between now. 
in November and, and use that to assess how, how things are, are developing. And so, um, uh, and we're looking forward to, to doing that. It's, uh, I, I will say one thing that we're looking forward to doing on this podcast is answering questions from you. And so, Melissa, is there a great way other, so of course, uh, if you are a subscriber to our Substack, there are all kinds of ways that you can get in touch with us. Uh, you can reply to the emails you receive and we get those. Uh, you can comment on the posts at reclaiminghope.substack.com uh, and we'll see those uh, comments. But for f- folks who aren't sort of on the Substack, is there a good way for them to get questions to us? Social media. Social media. So through Michael's accounts on Twitter, it's at Michael R. Ware. And on Instagram, it's at Michael Ware. Um, That's where we we post a lot of the newest episodes and things like that to keep up with it. So that's a great place to follow along for the Substack. I'm sorry, (laughs) for the podcast. Yeah. Um, And... You can send Michael a message. Um, I also have eyes on it too, so not just Michael, so that we can definitely catch when you send in a question or have a comment for us. Yeah. So I don't know if it'll be next week, but certainly between now and the midterms, we'd love to do an episode uh, where we're answering your questions. Uh, So start sending them in. Start sending them in. And uh, uh, as always, so grateful for those of you who have been listening to The Morning Five throughout the week, those who have uh, sort of sent your feedback to us about faith in the news and the political mm-hmm. brief and what we do over on the Substack. And uh, your feedback means a great deal to us. Uh, you're, uh, you're the reason why we, why we uh, do this podcast, why we do the Substack, why we do this work. And so um, thank you for listening. hope you have a... Uh, a great, if you're listening to this when it comes out, a great Sunday. Uh, I think most importantly. <laughs> I already know where you're going with this. <laughs> the Buffalo Bills play on Monday night. <laughs> and uh, just, you know, mark it on your calendar. It's going to be a great day. It's going to be a great m- for the Bills Monday Mafia. night football. Uh, we already have our plan. I mean, we're doing a little. Uh, I mean, because Sunday afternoons, it's now harder to watch the games with yes. two toddlers so running I around. Love evening games. Monday night, those kids are going to bed. We're getting bed. pizza from my favorite Baltimore pizza place. Yeah, they have a bedtime at eight o'clock. Uh uh-uh, uh, Monday night, seven forty-five. Kiddos, <laughs> get up there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I've been thinking about this pizza for weeks now. Yes, no, it's going to be very good. We're facing. Tennessee Titans, and I'm actually going to be in New in Nashville uh, just a few days after the game. I think I'm going to wear my Bills jersey. Yeah, you're going to be ready to troll. Yeah, I'm going to be. <laughs> that should be, you know, if we do a rebrand of this podcast again, I think ready to troll is a good is a good name. All right, folks. Hey, thanks for listening. Uh, again, really a joy. Send us your questions so we could do a. Uh, an episode uh, uh, just sort of taking taking your questions and being in more direct conversation with you. Uh, we'll we'll uh, we'll we'll talk to you next week. Until then, bye bye. <laughs> <laughs>
You're listening to Where We Are. We are the Wares. I'm Melissa. <laughs> <laughs>